Today we're going to be in John chapter 11, starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is the her is Mary, Lazarus' sister. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off his grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. There are two striking things about this passage, at least that struck me. One, number one is the end of the passage, when Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, and he does. The second striking thing about this passage is the way Jesus enters into the grief of those around him, that Jesus doesn't stand dispassionate. He's not building up the tension so he can swoop in and, and be the, the rescuer. Uh, instead, he enters into the grief in all the questions that emerge. And my concern as we look at this passage is that we focus on the first thing, the miracle, and we miss the second thing, which is Jesus' presence to those who are suffering, the hope he goes through and offers person by person. In fact, the book of John has in it seven signs, seven signs that Jesus gives. Uh, and if you know anything about a sign, if you've... Um, I don't know, go to the Grand Canyon, and you, you see the sign that says, Welcome to the Grand Canyon. You don't say, We saw it, and you just turn around, right? It's pointing you towards something much greater than the sign itself. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is a sign, but it's pointing us to something that we don't want to miss. Um, it's because what usually happens when we lose someone is they're gone. And what happens in this passage is Lazarus reemerges from the tomb. And what Jesus wants us to do is see that as a sign of what is promised to everyone, because not all of us will get to witness a miracle like that. But what the sign points to is something that all of us will one day bear witness to. So don't miss the sign from what it's pointing to, the ultimate source of comfort that Jesus wants to give us. Um, you can so what I want us to do is watch Jesus interact with three different groups of people. And I'm going to kind of project onto those the different stages of grief that we walk through. 
so that we can see how does Jesus meet each person at a different varying stage of their grief. You have, at the beginning, the first stage of grief, and any, anyone who's a therapist would want me to say that there's stages, but they're not stages in the sense of you get through the denial and you never go back to denial or you pass, especially anger, you know, that, okay, I'm, I'm through anger, I'm not going to experience that again. Uh, not necessarily. It's kind of a winding road through grief. And so um, the first one is, in, in a sense, what we call denial. It's shock. It's what, at the beginning of this passage, we see Martha. Martha hears that Jesus is in town. Just a little bit of the backstory, since we didn't read the full passage this morning, is Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick. And what's striking, one of the striking things about the way he's told is he's told by a messenger, he doesn't say Lazarus is sick, he says, the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus is out there healing people, preaching, teaching, and he doesn't come back in time to save Jesus. He intentionally lingers in one spot. So that's one of the questions at the, at the backdrop of this passage is why did Jesus linger? Why was he out there, to put it kind of bluntly, why was he out there healing strangers that he didn't have any personal connection with while the one whom he loves dies? Where was Jesus in that? So that's the question when Martha comes to him is um, if basically bargaining, I know you can bring him back. So that, that's, we'll, call that, we'll call that first stage um, shock, um, that, an unwillingness to accept what has just happened. We also see uh, anger at the heart of this passage. Groups of people that are saying to one another, could he who opened the eyes of the blind not have helped his friend out when he got sick? That in, in that sense of why was it this way? Why was Jesus who heals all these random people over here not present to one whom he loves deeply and profoundly? Why, why is the world in such a way that things feel so arbitrary? So he's passing through that. And then, of course, you have grief, loss, sadness. Mary, unable to get up off the couch to come and greet Jesus. So lost in her grief that she's just like, I can't, I can't even move right now. Um, this passage touches on the nerve of our deepest fear, our deepest grief, our deepest loss in life. It, in touching the deepest parts, it touches everything in between those parts. It's the, the hope we can have. If we can have hope in a time like this, then there's nothing we'll experience that we can't find hope in. So I want us to look at that as Jesus moves from group to group, person to person, and then the, the climactic moment of the sermon where he not the sermon, well, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll leave that to you whether it's the climactic moment of the sermon or not, but at the passage of Lazarus coming out of the tomb, saying everything that Jesus has said up to that point points to the future promise and Lazarus's resurrection is a sign of that promise. So let's watch him move from person to person, um, not offering an explanation, um, pursuing people, meeting them where they are, uh, standing ultimately in solidarity with us, standing in solidarity with our grief, bearing witness to it, and ultimately bringing hope, a living hope. So, let's set the scene. Jesus comes to a grieving village. Lazarus has passed. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, are there. The village who loved Lazarus as well, there to support the two sisters and the family in their grief. And Martha hears word, Jesus is in town, the teacher's in town. 
So Martha runs straight to Jesus and says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I believe that God will give you whatever you ask. Just ask. So can you hear? She's not outright saying, can you please resurrect my brother? But she's saying, she's implying that, right? Like, Jesus, even now I know, whatever you ask, he'll give you. What do you think I might want to be asking here, Jesus? So it's a very way of kind of honoring him as a teacher, his as a rabbi, that authority, but also making it pretty clear what she wants from this. She doesn't specifically ask her brother to be raised back in life, but still, she believes it's possible. Now, the point I'm about to make is undercut severely by the fact that Lazarus does indeed get raised back to life. So I'm aware of what happens. Uh, I'm saying in general, though, when, when we are unable to accept a loss and we're bargaining, you know, even now, God, I know you can still, you know, that's one of the other stages of grief is, is bargaining. You know, even now I know that you can resurrect. Even now I know it, I, I, do I need to go and be a missionary somewhere? Do I need to sell everything? You know, what do we need to do to make this happen? It's kind of where she's at. She hasn't fully accepted the loss. She's got some ideas for how things could go, and, and then she brings that all before Jesus. And I just want to draw our attention to the fact that even though usually most people don't come out of those tombs, still the hope that Jesus gives her is for all of us wherever we are, wherever we need hope. The words are the same. And in fact, the calling out is that she might believe in the thing that he's actually going to talk to her about right now. That's the point. That's the sign. That's the whole sign thing. Um, so she, Jesus' response in, in loss to say to her is he takes her grief, her loss, and her wanting her, her brother return to her and redirects that into the hope she has of resurrection, an ultimate resurrection. She goes, he goes immediately from, even now you can, God will give you what you ask, into the promise of the resurrection. Ending with him saying to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And asking if she does and believes things. And so what he does is he takes in her the deep sense that she has of this is not right. Death does not feel natural. Loss does not feel natural. And what she's bumping up against is the reality of knowing her brother's gone, but also knowing there's something wrong about this. This doesn't feel like how things... I I should not have lost my brother here. She's trying to reconcile those two things. One is the loss itself, and two, the sense of this is... that death is an unwelcome visitor in God's world, not the natural order of things. And so what Jesus does is he takes that feeling, that tension, and says, you're right. Take that and project it into the future resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that one day everything will be returned to you? And she says, I do believe. I do believe that God will will resurrect. And Jesus says, good. That feeling is me. I am the resurrection and the life. That hope, that innate sense we have of this world where things are made right, Jesus says, that's me. I am those things. I am the resurrection, and I am 
the life. I am the resurrection, not just in the sense of, of bodies and people, but in every sense we long for the world to be what it is not. The goodness, the sense of the way that evil and disorder and war and division all feel in some ways unnatural to us. Jesus says that feeling is resolved in me. Do you believe these things? And what Jesus says is, I am the resurrection and the life. We need to remember. Did you know the number one command in Scripture is do not be afraid? So that's the number one, and it's connected to what I'm about to say. Somewhere on that list is the command to remember. It's an interesting exercise to go through using the theologian's favorite tool book, the Google search, and just type for the word remember. Where, where does the word remember in Scripture? And just pick some at random and make note of what kinds of things are God's people commanded to remember. Is it remember the horrible things you did in your past? Because God, God remembers and he continues, nope, nope, that's not in there. It's remembering of two specific things. Number one, the promises God has made to his people. And those are the ones that maybe have not yet been fully fulfilled yet. Um, second is remember God's faithfulness to his people in the past. And sometimes those are really specific. Remember when I heard your prayers in Egypt and I rescued you from slavery. Remember the promises I made years ago that you would have a child. That in both instances, whether it's God's promises and covenants he made with his people, which includes things like, I promise I'm going to go pray a place for you. I promise I'm the resurrection of life. All the ways that God has made covenants with his people or all the specific ways God has been faithful to you. And to remember is to carry God's faithfulness in the past to shape our imaginations as we anticipate the future. That remembering is the spiritual, holy activity of remembering with gratitude God's faithfulness in the past with the purpose of carrying that into the future. So when he says to Martha, remember resurrection. Remember that? Yes, I do remember that. Carry that into the future. I am the resurrection. What you're lamenting and what you're grieving, um, I grieve too. I lament it too. In fact, that's why I'm here, because I am the resurrection. I am the one who brings death, out of death, brings life. I am the one that when the seed dies in the ground, it dies to produce something new out of it. I am remember in this grief. You know, part of the command, what is implied in the command to remember? What does it say about us? What can we infer about humans in the fact that we need to be told to remember? Forgetful, that's what it was. I couldn't remember. Follow me for more dad jokes. Uh, so we must be quick to forget. We must be quick to, pro, to fall prey to despair, to become despondent, to think, yeah, 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 that's happened in the past, but the future. But, and, and, and imagine a future. You know, part of, part of anxiety is imagining a future without God's faithful presence in it. You know, that is anxiety producing, you know, to, to imagine a future without God's redemptive activities. But if we can remember the past, his faithfulness, if we can put passages like this one in what we remember, and if we can put specific ways God's been faithfulness to us 
in, into that category of remember, all of it shapes grief, trauma, and what we think about can happen in the future. When death feels final, when loss feels like more than we can bear, it is framed within a promise that we need to remember. Jesus is the resurrection and the hope. This is why Lazarus being called out of the grave is a sign. It's saying, just as I have the power to resuscitate Lazarus and bring, call him out, just as I have the authority to overcome death itself and return a spirit to a body that's been in there for a number of days, one of the great tragedies of not reading the, the King James anymore is Martha says in the King James, but Lord, he's been in there for four days. He stinketh, which is, he stinketh is man of all the Hebrew to put on my arm as a tattoo. He stinketh is up there. Um, but our hope is not, our hope is not in the resuscitation of the dead. Our hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Lazarus died again. That's why this is just a sign. Lazarus is resuscitated, but he isn't walking among us as like a Highlander or something. Um, he, is, he died again. He was resuscitated only back to his mortal body, still subject to death and decay. Jesus is resurrected. And as Paul writes voluminously in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits. The promise is just as Jesus in the same way Jesus was resurrected, so will you. And as, a, as Jesus was called into a body that's imperishable, um, free from death, so too shall we. Our hope is more than mere resuscitation. Uh-oh, is that happening again? No, okay, good. Any hope, any miracle uh, that we could experience is, is ultimately still vulnerable to death. We're still ultimately going to die. So when, but resurrection is forever. So when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, do you believe me? What he's saying is, do you have the eyes to see that your grief is temporary, that your tears will be one day turned into joy, that what you fear would be taken, your worst nightmare that's happening right now, there's a place already prepared for you by me where none of that is, is part of the story at all. It's all gone. It's gone forever. Do you believe this, that this life is not all there is? And that, honestly, you're free to love. You're free to love freely. Because what, what stops us from loving full, full-heartedly? It's, it's grief like this. It's knowing that to love is to entrust some key part of you to someone. And knowing that that person could reject it, that person could die, that person could become a teenager. I'm just kidding. It's totally, totally, totally a joke. Um, N.T. Wright, Wright says that, you know, all, we Christians, that the gospel, the, 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 a lot of that is about the... Um, the hope that in life after death. But what N.T. Wright says, the, the miracle of the gospel is that there's life before death. That the resurrection opens a doorway that there's nothing to fear anymore. They can't, no, nobody can take anything away that God won't turn back to us. That He says that we've become so, uh, he, he wouldn't say this because he's British, so I'll, I'll say, that we've become so obsessed with the afterlife 
that we forget the before life, the this life, the, the hope in, in that we have and can live with now, that every sob, every time you, you sob, you first must fill your lungs up with air. Every breath is a gift, even if it's turned into sorrow. Every breath is still a gift, that the tears in this passage that we see is shared by a community that have come together to walk together as people, uh, as neighbors through grief and loss, to live fully is to love fully. And as John will later say in 1 John, there's no fear in love. Why? Why is there no fear in love? Because of the resurrection. There's nothing to fear anymore. You can love with your full heart. Because even when things are taken from us, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, they will all be returned back to you. The love is to risk, to risk moments like a, a community grieving the loss of Lazarus. But Jesus says, but it will be returned. Do you believe this, Martha? Remember. The second response, the second group is, is kind of the, the mutterers, those who are um, in the anger phase of things. And what they say is, couldn't the one who opened the eyes of the blind have healed his friend? Um, well, that's a, I think that's a question all of us have asked, right? And Jesus is somewhere with other people that are strangers. Here's his best friend, one of his closest, one, the one whom you love is sick. Why? Is, why didn't Jesus show up? Um, why did he linger? If you read early in, in John 11, he lingers by design. Why? Why would he do that? Um, it's a question that is unresolved in Scripture. When we, when we went through the book of Job, we just let the question be, the question of why. That was a question we just had to let go of. And when we let go of that question of why, which looks backwards in the past and tries to understand the chain of events that led to this tragedy. When we let go of that, we find a God who's, who's creating something new in the world. And the pain and the suffering, to, to use a metaphor Paul uses, are like birth pains. All pain and suffering is redeemed in Christ as the birth pains bringing something new into the world. So Jesus doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer why he didn't intervene sooner. Um, and it's it's the reality that we need to expect. And what Jesus redirects that, that question towards is, is, again, the ultimate hope of the resurrection. Instead of, of looking backwards and trying to understand why, why are things this way? They could have been so many different ways. Instead of looking backwards with the why question, we look forward with the what question. What is God going to do next? And turns out, something pretty, pretty amazing. So, finally, Mary. Mary, who is unable to get off the couch. Mary, who hears the teacher is here and cannot be moved off of her, of her couch. She's trapped in grief. She's trapped in the question because she asked Jesus the same question Martha did. It's not actually a question, it's a statement. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's one of the most fascinating Remarks, you know, it's where we see God's pastoral heart, his shepherding heart. She says the exact same thing that Martha says, word for word. But it means something completely different to Mary. To Martha, he talks about resurrection. He, he goes a little bit more cerebral. She's trying to get her head around something. He enters into that. But Mary doesn't, isn't trying to get her head around anything. She just has a heart has been devastated and destroyed. 
You know what Jesus does in response to her? He asks her a question. Where is he? Where have you laid him? Let me go and see him. She, he, doesn't, he knows she's not looking for words right now. She doesn't need words. She's deeply in grief. She can't get off the couch. And so what Jesus does from there is out, looks around, sees everything that death has taken, the loss of his friend, the stupid tomb with its rock in front of it, with a dead body in there, everybody grieving, and he weeps. He weeps so loudly and so passionately that all those who had been grieving stopped and looked at Jesus. And what did they say? Look at how much he loved him. Jesus enters into grief in solidarity. He joins the community in their loss. He's not aloof, not like, oh, right, this, this, the stage is set for me to come in and do something dramatic. He sees the grief. He sees the loss. He doesn't see this as chess pieces moving along to do what he needs to do. And, and he, death is no friend of Jesus. Death is the enemy to be conquered. Just death, Jesus is not friends with death and does not use death to, to further his purposes. That he is opposed to death and grieves. You know, one of the one of the great burdens of grief and of loss is isolation. Grief makes you feel all alone. Nobody can see it. Nobody's privy to what's happening in your heart. Nobody can see the way it affects your relationships. Nobody can see the way it keeps you up at night. Nobody can see, nobody can see all that. And, and so what happens in grief is what we need most is community. But we, what we the last thing we want to experience because nobody can bear witness to our pain and, and, and suffering. And in what Jesus comes and does is he bears witness to that grief. He bears witness to the suffering. He stands in solidarity with the grieving and he joins them so strongly in their weeping. What do they say when they saw that? They said, look at how much he loved him. That he is moved in the same way we are. He sees you. And he sees your loss. And he sees your grief. And he knows that more than the answers to our questions, more than the why question that, that haunts human existence, is we need to be seen in our grief. We need somebody to bear witness to our grief. You know, when you're grieving, and you're at a loss like Mary is here, you don't want somebody to come and give you a theological explanation of why you actually shouldn't be grieving because all the good things that's going to come out of it. And, uh, you, know, you don't want somebody to explain and, and lecture to you. Um, what you want is somebody just to sit next to you, to bear witness, to feel seen with words like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And the ultimate solidarity would be somebody who enters into the grief in the same way you do, whose heart is broken in the same way that yours is broken. That the connection we have in loving the same person and losing the same person is in grief. We can feel seen in that grief. We don't need answers. We need somebody to stand and bear witness to our grief, to stand and join us in our grief. When somebody says, why do 
why, where is God in moments like this? Where is, why is Jesus out there healing the blind, of, the blind strangers when he, he could have come and, and rescued his friend? And say, I don't know why things happen. No idea. But I know Jesus grieves with those who are grieving. And I know that Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive comfort. So where do you need Jesus to show up? Are you in shock, trying to make sense of your loss? Are you aware of the profound disruption of death and loss and what it brings to us? Are you angry? Are you those who say, well, Jesus could have healed this person and that person. Why not ease my pain, my suffering? Or are you like Mary, grieved, broken, and just needing somebody to come and say, I see you. I see you in your pain, and I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Wherever you are, Jesus is coming to find you and to meet you. Nobody in this passage is condemned for the way Jesus meets person where they are and offers them. And ultimately, all that hope is in the awareness that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. All the signs point to Jesus being the resurrection and life. Death's defeated. Grief will ultimately be resolved. All things will come under the, the good care of God. Resurrection is forever. Death is defeated. All the normal aches and pains to the loss we experience, gone forever. I want to close with the words of Jürgen Moltmann, because apparently I discovered German theologians last week. Um, this, is, this is what he says. Now I want you to I want you to hear this first sentence and say to yourself, that can't be right. And then hear the second sentence and go, oh, I see what he did there, okay? So that, that's going to be your journey. You ready? Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized. And wounded. What he's saying there is that what miracles interrupt and disrupt is, are all the things that Jesus came to do away with. The kingdom that he brought with them is a kingdom where the world as it is is exposed for being unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So may you live with hope in an unnatural, demonized, and wounded world. And may you remember that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And may you come to the table that anticipates the great banquet that awaits us on the other side of death, where true life awaits us, where death is gone. Come with your grief, your loss, your shock, that you might remember at the table resurrection that Jesus gave his life to us. There is so much life left for you before death interrupts it. So may you live 
for what God has always promised as if it were true now, for it is. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, we do so grieving, in shock, angry. We come, frankly, as human beings, living in a world that was not intended for us to live in, where death, sin, decay, disease interrupt the world as you intended it. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that we will pass through death into life everlasting because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And until then, may we claim that hope now, for we need it desperately. In Christ's name, amen. Come to the table.